A man walks inside the dimly lit parlor, stroking his mustache and clearly concerned. He hands a small glove to another man, who is sitting at a round table, shoulders hunched. His breath leaves him in small puffs that look like smoke in the icy cold room. The glove sits in his large hands as he glides his thumb across the delicate crocheted stitches. When he speaks, the gentleman leans in, ears attentive and eyes piercing with intensity. He says, The person who owns this is half dazed and half purposeful. She is not dead, as many think. She is alive. That was the best piece of evidence authorities had on the disappearance of the Lady of Mystery, Agatha Christie, and it was given by the psychic Horace Leaf to spiritualist and famous detective fiction writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. British citizens were in an uproar. The Queen of Mystery must be found. The news even showed up on the front page of the New York Times. But let's step back in time for a moment. It's 1926, the golden age of detective fiction. Springing from World War I, the world loves a good mystery, and there are several brilliant authors willing to give it to them. This also includes our Agatha. In 1926, her writing career is finally taking off upon the release of her last novel. She and her husband, Archie, even buy a home and name it after an estate in one of her books. There, the couple spend their time raising their beautiful daughter, Rosalind, and playing with Agatha's beloved dog, Peter. But this blooming life is a facade, a carefully wrought picture for the world to gaze upon. And the truth behind Agatha's disappearance is found behind closed doors, in the dark corners of her seemingly perfect life. Known today as one of the most adored mystery writers of all time, Agatha kept a few secrets of her own, and perhaps this one is her greatest mystery. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. The clock on the heavy oak mantel ticked in steady tune with my heart. My fingers strummed the mahogany desk, tips growing sore from repeatedly doing so for hours. What were the words he'd used? Obsessive, meticulous, writing a story instead of living my own. My cheeks warmed at the thought, and I stopped strumming, leaning back into the leather-tufted office chair. The faint smell of chamomile met my nose, reminding me that Madge had brought the tea to calm my nerves hours earlier. The tea bag still floated, swollen and belly up in the cup. An image of a body in a lake drifted into my mind. Who was it? 
A woman. A corpse. White dress floating around her. Delicately thin fabric on top of the dark water. Roll her over, I thought. Look at her face. Something I'd never do in one of my books. Some details were too gruesome. Too real. I never liked getting too close to death. But this time it was different. I reached for her and she seemed so close. So very close. But my feet slid in the mud, cold water seeping into my shoes before I reached her. I gave her a nudge, her face startling me. I pounded the desk hard with my fist, sending a jolt that stretched up my arm and into my mind. Then I pushed the vision away. My eyes still focused on the tea. I slid it aside and stood My legs, still stiff from having sat for so long, gave a little, and for a moment, I felt like I'd faint. I propped myself up, leaning on the desk. My stomach growled. I couldn't remember the last time I'd eaten. You neglected me. Can't you see that? I'd swallowed his bitter words. For your work, Archie had said. If Rosalind weren't there, I would have screamed at him. I would have spat all the venom I'd kept locked inside of me this year and all the years before. Years where I had prayed to be a successful writer. Years I'd been buried in rejections. Years I'd repeatedly heard mother's pressing concern of my needing to find a husband. What a disaster all that was now. I needed no one to keep me. But that didn't keep me from wanting to be kept to be loved. He couldn't even respect me, much less anything else. Doesn't he realize how dangerous women are? Doesn't he know how fragile, delicate life is? How easy it'd be to end his affair, his life, once and for all? My eyes fell on the tea again, the murky golden brown liquid gently sweetened with honey. Just enough to cover the taste of poison. How many people had I killed with poison to date? My mind searched all the stories I'd written. I couldn't be sure exactly. Peter, my wire-haired terrier, brushed against my knee. I wasn't the only one feeling forgotten and thrown aside. I patted his head and ran my hand down his back a few times. My eyes then flickered back to the tea and the woman in the water, lifeless. There's a story here, I whispered to myself. This lady, her husband, left her for a much younger woman after she'd spent her youth in waistline on him, birthing their child. I bit my lip and shook my head, feeling completely disgusted. Not only with Archie, but with myself as well. How could I have allowed things to go this far? I wouldn't stand for it anymore. Absolutely not. I've been suffering for far too long. I sat back down at my typewriter and angrily beat the keys. I rattled off a quick note for my secretary for the morning and headed downstairs. Thankful Rosalind was sound asleep and there was someone there to watch her. 
I grabbed my handbag and fur coat and left through the front door of Styles, our home named after my first published work, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and headed toward the car. Ah, my precious Morris Cowley, bought with my hard-earned money. It always been this way, it seemed. Me slaving over a manuscript while Archie floundered around with other women, making a fool out of me. Lips tight and mind set, I opened the car door and slid inside, its large seats nearly swallowing me. The oversized wheels sat inches above my knees. I started the engine and pressed the pedal. I'd told the secretary I would be staying in Yorkshire, but I had a place in mind already. I drove south instead of north toward Yorkshire, down a lone road that led to the silent pool. I'd read about it as a teen in a book. A young girl, daughter of a woodcutter, kidnapped and forced deep into the dark water, and drowned by King John. It's a terrible story. My hands tightened around the steering wheel until my knuckles were white as I thought back to the tea that grew colder and stronger still on my desk at home and the woman's body in the dark water and her face her face I closed my eyes only for a moment as the road turned abruptly I fought the wheel but the tires continued stubbornly in the direction of the grass I let go, let it all go It was as if time had slowed to a crawl. I was floating outside of myself, looking at my knees hit the wheel, head bobbing in the dark cabin, and purse flinging open, content strong. A sharp pain jolted me back, and the car hit something hard, sending my forehead to the wheel. My eyes drooped sleepily when I came to, feeling a sudden sense of fear, not knowing where I was. It took me a minute to pull the memories and remind myself what I was doing here. Lasted. I cursed and hit the wheel with the palm of my hand, alive and still perfectly well. I had to do something. The woman's face flashed in my mind again. Her body swallowed and spit out by the water, by life, by a man who'd murdered her. I wouldn't become her. Never. On December 3rd, 1926, in the late evening hours, the infamous lady of mystery decided to walk away from her life. She and her husband, Archie, had a huge fight earlier that morning. They had been having marital troubles, but more than that, she knew Archie's dirty little secret, the young Nancy Neal. Some say that Archie's affair was the result of having grown tired of Agatha's baby weight, and that he had resented her for making more money than him. And then there was the emasculating chore of having to ask her for permission to drive her car or access money. On the morning of Saturday, December 4th, 
Agatha's car, a Morris Cowley, was found abandoned near the folkloric Silent Pool. Inside the car, authorities found her license and a fur coat. Considering the strange and uncharacteristic events, a massive police hunt ensued. The police then interviewed Archie, who just so happened to be spending the weekend with his mistress, Nancy Neal. Understandably, Archie didn't disclose all the details of their marriage, which only made him look even more suspicious. As we all know, the husband is always the first suspect. The media of the time, newspapers, hyped the mystery all over the country and even in the United States. People began wondering if this was an epic hoax meant to skyrocket sales for the budding young author at the time. But there was something flawed in that story. Because Agatha really was gone, and she stayed that way for 11 days. The Home Secretary, William Johnson Hicks, reached out to fellow mystery author Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, believing that his wide knowledge in the detective field may help. As I mentioned earlier, Doyle reportedly gave a glove to a psychic in hopes of finding clues to the whereabouts of Miss Christie. Despite his super-logical character, Sherlock Holmes, Dole himself was a huge believer in the supernatural and was a known spiritualist. So to him, this was likely a very plausible way he could contribute to finding the beloved author. Agatha's photo was blasted everywhere, and there was a hundred-pound award for finding her. On Sunday, the 12th of December, about a week later, Two members of the hotel band at the Harrogate Hydropathic Hotel in Yorkshire went to police and mentioned that they thought they recognized her as one of the hotel's guests. Upon investigation, police learned that Agatha checked into the hotel Saturday, December 4th. She strangely used the name Teresa Neal, which was the surname of her husband's mistress. She then said she was from South Africa. Backtracking a little bit, in April of the same year, Agatha's mother, Clara, died. The two were close, and this was a devastating blow for the author. To make matters worse, Archie had been out of town on business and was unable to be there for her. So Agatha suffered this great loss alone. And as if things couldn't get any worse, Archie decided that when he got home, That would be the ideal time to tell his wife about his affair. Clearly, it had all become too much. According to guests and employees at the hotel, Teresa Neal seemed perfectly normal, dancing, eating, and socializing. It's been reported that a guest had mentioned to her how much she looked like the author, Agatha Christie, but she just laughed it off. The police had Archie come to identify his wife. When he got there and saw her, he confirmed the theory. They had dinner together at the hotel, even. Oh, to be a fly on that table, right? The official story from Archie that has been maintained by the family was that she suffered amnesia from the stress of losing her mother and her overwhelming workload. Most people were unconvinced by this, which is why the story is such a captivating mystery. The majority of the public believed that all of this was a publicity stunt, 
But those closest to Agatha believe that's so far from the truth. Agatha, rarely even wanting her own photos on her books, was a hugely private individual who shied away from the media whenever possible. Biographer Jared Cade believes that Agatha staged the whole thing to give Archie a shock and says that Agatha spent the first night with a close family friend named Nan. According to sources, the two worked out what the author would do in the days to come. Agatha's goal, make Archie feel what it would be like to live without her. I could imagine there was a great sadness tied to this whole ordeal. Perhaps this was Agatha's last hope to see if Archie would snap out of it and come to his senses, recognize what a beautiful life the two of them had built, and come back to her. The reality was, though, he no longer loved her. No matter how much she loved him, she couldn't make him love her back, and she wanted her daughter Rosalind to grow up with both parents. It's clear that Agatha had no idea what a ruckus her disappearance would cause. If this were to happen in modern times, we'd all know about her disappearance within an hour, and news and social media would blast it nearly non-stop until she was found or something more interesting came along. Everyone would be searching, and the story would spread like wildfire. The effects on her career was twofold. Ever since then, there's been talk about this, and people have wondered if the author was desperate for more than just the attention from her husband. But it did boost her book sales. People wanted to know more about the woman who lived her own mystery, who stepped from the pages of one of her books and decided to create it in real life. In 1926, she was published and was doing well, but she wasn't yet a household name. Her most famous book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, predated this event. A long while later, after the dust had settled, Agatha finally granted Archie a divorce and she and her daughter went on vacation to the Canary Islands. Archie married Nancy Neal, and Agatha snagged herself a younger man as well, Sir Max Malawan. She's famously quoted saying, An archaeologist is the best husband a woman can have. The older she gets, the more interested he is in her. The two, in essence, live happily ever after. To fans... There seems to be a pre-disappearance and a post-disappearance Agatha when it comes to her writing. Topics in her books became a little darker and deeper, and this is also when the Miss Marple character came to fruition. She's the opposite of all the young, blissful characters of before. Agatha's work shifted from youthful romanticism to adult skepticism. There are two other theories surrounding Agatha's disappearance. One is that Agatha had plotted to kill herself but couldn't see it through, which is detailed in the fictional but heavily researched account in Andrew Wilson's novel, A Talent for Murder. Realizing she couldn't do it, feeling that it was a sin and not wanting to leave her daughter, she decided to spend some quiet time away to figure things out. Theorists cite quotes from her book to support this. In her semi-autobiographical novel, Unfinished Portrait, Published in 1934 under the pseudonym Mary Westmacott, a character named Celia attempted suicide, and in Christie's words, she admitted that it had been very wicked of her to try. And it wasn't uncommon for Agatha's real life to spill into her work, or any other author for that matter. 
For writers, small things tend to bleed into our writing, even when we don't mean for them to. One of her books, Murder in Mesopotamia, is a perfect example of this. Christie's husband, Malawan, was the assistant archaeologist to Sir Leonard Woolley. And for some reason, Woolley's wife wasn't too fond of Christie. And the feeling became mutual for Christie because Woolley's wife wouldn't allow her to stay at the campsite with her husband. So he had to travel every night to be with her. As a sort of vengeance, I imagine, Christie made an architect's wife the murder victim in the book and dedicated it to the Woolies. Not so subtle, Agatha. <laughs> Another theory by Andrew Newman is that she suffered from a psychogenic fugue, which is a temporary mental break which causes loss of identity. Even in her autobiography, she didn't speak about what happened. Critics mentioned that she talked about almost every other thing in her life besides this, arguably the most intriguing mystery she invented. It all makes one wonder. It would be easy and even expected if she had just said, yeah, I was having a hard time. My mother died and my husband was cheating on me. Anyone would be entitled to a few bad days. We'd all agree with her there. I think it's her reluctance to speak for herself on the topic. Archie's statement was the only one really recorded, and who wants to hear from him anyway, right? I think it's her reluctance that makes us all still curious and wonder if there's more to the story. In the movie, Agatha and the Truth of Murder, which is available on Netflix, writers speculate that Agatha may have been trying to help solve a real-life mystery. It's certainly entertaining and worth watching, and at this point, who really knows what happened? Obviously, this is how Agatha wanted it. Maybe this was her way of continuing to write the mystery even after her death. After all, people are still writing about their theories, and we're still talking about it. All publicity is good publicity, right? It's true that she didn't speak directly about what happened those 11 days, but according to the UK's Daily Mail in 1928, she opened up about her emotional state on the day she went missing. She admitted that she was having a hard time eating, sleeping, and felt horribly depressed. She went on to say that she'd once paid a visit to a relative and passed a quarry, or the silent pool. And these are Agatha's words. There came into my mind the thought of driving into it. However, as my daughter was with me in the car, I dismissed the idea at once. That night, I felt terribly miserable. I felt that I could go on no longer. I left home that night in a state of high nervous strain with the intention of doing something desperate. When I reached a point on the road where I thought was near the quarry, I turned the car off the road down the hill towards it. I left the wheel and let the car run. The car struck something with a jerk and pulled up suddenly. I was flung against the steering wheel and my head hit something. Up to this moment, I was Miss Christie. By leaving us in the dark, the Lady of Mystery has left us with an enduring question. What happened to her during those 11 days? Was she really ready to walk away from everything? Or was she simply needing to clear her head? Did she truly suffer from amnesia? Or did she actually plan her own death? We may never know. 
which makes it all the more intriguing for some. But it's a frustration for her fans, who are accustomed to all the loose ends tied up at the end, in the typical whodunit style. And who knows, maybe we'll actually find out the truth someday in some final plot twist. But we all know that real life is messy and sometimes incomplete. Perhaps that's the truest lesson she's left us with. Not every mystery can be solved. Fabled is produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles. With music by Kevin McLeod and E's Jamie Jams. Special thanks to Sarah and Austin from Chimera Creative for the amazing episode cover art. They captured young Agatha perfectly and were amazing to work with. Be sure to check out their work on Instagram at Chimera Creative Co. and on Etsy. If you'd like to know more about Agatha's disappearance, be sure to check out the show notes at fabledcollective.com and follow us on social media at Fable Collective. I'll be posting some photos and newspaper clippings throughout the week. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.